Stay tuned for the Farm and Garden Show. And welcome to the Farm and Garden Show, coming at you the third Thursday of every month. My name is Lemma, and I'm here today with my co-hosts and family, Matthew and Leela. We are broadcasting live from the Ron O'Brien Studio in Philo, California. Today, our guest is Matt Druno, and we are excited to be discussing his recent publication, A A Path to Peace and Sustainability, growing soil, food, and seed in as little as a thousand square feet. At half past the hour, we'll be opening up the lines for questions and comments. The number to call is 895-2448. Since this is our first show, we'd like to take a moment to introduce ourselves. Our little family has been living in Boonville for seven years. During this time, we have started a mushroom cultivation business called The Forest People. Established a subsistence vegetable garden, managed the Boonville Farmer's Market, and participated in organizing community events surrounding local food and homesteading. We love where we live and are excited to be the new host of this long-running show. All right. Today we're going to talk to Matt Druno. Matt Druno runs the Victory Gardens for Peace Initiative, a project of Ecology Action, a nonprofit helping individuals worldwide empower themselves to grow healthy food while conserving resources and building soil. He manages the Victory Gardens for Peace Mini Farm and Seed Bank in Mendocino, and he is the president of Garden Friendly Community Fort Bragg. Thanks for coming on the show today. How are you, Matt? I'm good. Can you guys hear me okay? Yeah, it sounds good. Yeah, it's so great to meet you and your lovely family, and I'm so glad you guys um, have this show. You got a buttery voice, man. I'm I'm impressed. (laughs) Right on. Well, so many, you know, standing on the shoulders of so many different uh, giants in this (laughs) this county we live in here. So um, I think Lemma is going to start off with some interview questions. So to get started, can you give us a background about Victory Gardens for Peace Initiative and talk about the garden where you did the research for your booklet? Sure. Um, the Victory Gardens for Peace Initiative is a project of Ecology Action, uh, who was, which Ecology Action was started by John Jevons in 1972 uh, with a focus on research, education, and demonstration of what we call the grow biointensive method or biointensive agriculture, which is really kind of human scale, done by hand, no machines, low input, high yielding. Um, we call it mini farming. It's like a cross between garden and, and farm scale. Um, but it's a little more intensive than your typical garden, though these techniques that have been uh, developed at Ecology Action can be applied at any scale, um, no matter how big or small your garden is. And the goal is sustainability and um, food. Food for the soil, food for people. Um, Victory Gardens for Peace initiative was started about five years ago Um when I was working with a good friend, Rachel Lossie, and we were cleaning seeds, and we were listening to Naomi Klein's audiobook about climate change, this could change everything. And she cited a quote saying that in 1943, at the peak of World War II, um, almost half the food in the country was grown in backyard gardens. And Rachel and I were working for Ecology Action at that point, and we knew the potential of these gardens, um, these biointensive gardens to be specific in terms of um, creating a truly sustainable agriculture and immediately we lit up and said oh my gosh we need another victory gardens movement the thing about the victory gardens was um, they were done in response to war and so they were really an effort by um, 
all aspects of society to stabilize a condition of scarcity during a time of violence to overcome an enemy. And we kind of took a different position saying that these victory gardens could kind of precede war because most wars are fought over the struggle for resources um, by finding and creating abundance in our communities. And as we move into the future and there's more people on this planet and less resources available per person, um, there's a heightened risk of violence and war, especially with the wild card of climate change, mass migrations, um, droughts, fires, things like that. So we look at this Victory Gardens approach, which is comprised of a couple different initiatives um, to create local food movements. I love this idea about the Victory Gardens. It's fantastic, but repurposing it for that of peace. Um, what a brilliant idea and so inspiring. Uh, I wonder how we can motivate people uh, in our current dominant culture without a massive government campaign um, to take up digging forks and grow their own food. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think we're all, we're all part of the solution. And that's the, the great opportunity in front of us is that uh, in this effort, you know, out of necessity, we're going to have to localize food production. Um, and the challenge will be, how do we do that without depleting our natural resource base and our ecologies? Um, for example, if everyone were to grow a garden and harvest seaweed um, to fertilize, we wouldn't have any kelp forests left. <laughs> so how do we come up with alternative ways that kind of close the loop on sustainability and show how to do more with less rather than more with more? Um, so I think, you know, one of the, the things that John Jevons told me um, was that in, in his wisdom of, of running this organization for 50 years and having been all over the world practicing biointensive agriculture and teaching it, the most powerful examples he saw were examples where people were just doing it quietly as an example for others to stumble upon or see and to invite people and just see the example that we can create rather than going out and constantly trying to convince everybody to, mm -hmm. to do sustainable gardening. So, I think we all just need to start doing it. And the, the cool thing is, is it's fun. And who doesn't love gardening? Um, and it's a, it's a challenge, and it's an opportunity, and you learn so much every year. And it tastes delicious, too. So um, the benefits um, are well worth the risks of getting dirty and giving it a shot. Um, yeah. Yeah, Tasty Revolution sounds sounds good to me. Uh, I'm yeah. <laughs> So grow, grow biointensive is not just a new planting method or even just a new way to cultivate your soil. Um, grow biointensive is embedded within a system of methodologies that are all working to support each other through these uh, synergistic interdependence. Could you talk about what, in your opinion, is the most significant difference between agriculture or farming as it is known today and the grow biointensive method? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um Depending on where you go in the world, you'll see different forms of biointensive, or you know, you'll see more agricultural systems that are more intensive, meaning more uh, trying to produce more on less land uh, with less resources, or you'll see examples of extensive, which is um, getting as much land as you can and making as much money off of it, um, and and really kind of taking over the environment. Those are two ends of the the spectrum. Um, with mechanization, with fossil fuels. Um, we've been able to import energy like we've never been able to do before. 
And so we're able to, where in the past we used to work with our human energy to grow our food, and if the calories we invested were greater than the calories we grew, we were in trouble. But now we can invest huge amounts of calories in the form of fossil fuel energy, and calories are just a a measurement of energy. Um, We can invest huge amounts of energy to kind of cheat and uh, dig those things up from way deep within the earth um, burn them and then put that into the atmosphere, get the energy from that to do the work for us. So you'll see one today, I think one farmer feeds 155 people in the U.S. Um, with machinery and fossil fuels, and that may seem impressive, but I beg the question, what happens when that farmer dies? So, um, you know, you'll see the, the, the thing about the biointensive techniques that they've, they've been distilled out of Um, As much as we've been able to find of the human record of agriculture and different cultures around the world, and it's these eight basic principles that come together, like you said, synergistically as a pattern language to apply anywhere you're trying to grow food, in any soil or climate where you want to grow food. Um, And it enables you to start getting a yield and improve your soil right away. And it's a little different than the modern forms of uh, agriculture, which, you know, are are a little less um, conscious of the intricacies of soil and food and the connection of people and land, um, we're able to kind of cheat that with all the fossil fuel-driven tractors and what what have you that we use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know there are there are all of these different systems that we're working with today, um, and I'm just wondering if you could discuss the difference between a subsistence garden versus a market garden versus a home garden and maybe kind of fit in grow biointensive somewhere in there? Sure, sure. So I would think, um, you know, these are just Matt's definitions, but I generally think of a home garden as something that is primarily um, for the family, for flavor and nutrition, um, for food resource. Maybe a subsistence garden might be something that's more focused on growing as much food as you can, as much of your diet as you can. Um with a special emphasis on, on lots of different crops, especially some of these calorie crops that provide a, the majority of our, our food, nutrition, and energy um, so we can go about our days. And then a market garden is probably more focused on selling um, and growing income rather than growing food for yourself, though I think all of those probably can cross over. Um, the grow biointensive technique can be used in any type of agricultural system, whether you're a market farmer a home gardener, or you're shooting for subsistence and trying to grow as much of your own food for yourself and your family. Um, that's kind of the beauty of it. You don't need a lot of resources. You don't need a lot of money. You don't need a lot of land. You don't need a lot of tools. Uh, a digging spade and a digging fork, um, some real simple technologies that have been around for a long, long time, uh, hand tools, in other words, um, can do the job for you. And um, working with nature uh, is is really key to all this, and the grow biointensive technique really focuses on soil health as the foundation for plant health and human nutrition. So, when you implement these techniques, whether you're market gardening or home gardening, you're you're likely going to see an increase in yields, uh, an increase in soil nutrition, um, and you know an overall uh, amplification of of production and health um, in your garden. Mm-hmm. So I think um, if someone hasn't seen 
a biointensive garden, they might just kind of visualize uh, something they would see in the, I don't know, the Central Valley, just all these acres bare, of bare land. Um, maybe could you describe what a thousand square foot garden looks like and sort of feels like? I mean, are there greenhouses? Are you using sprinklers? Maybe just kind of give us a, a little overview of what a thousand square foot garden that produces most of your nutrition for a year, what would that look like? Yeah. So one of the interesting things that's happening is the UN is telling us we have to intensify agriculture. And so you hear a lot of um, intensification, bio-intensification. And that's one of the reasons we use the word grow bio-intensive um, is because it kind of sets it apart from you know, the, the what you're hearing come about as intensification. In other words, the UN says that um, in the next 20 or 30 years, we're going to have to increase food production by 70% to meet the needs of our population. They're also telling us we've got about 25 to 50 years of soil remaining. So to me, that sounds like increasing the destruction of our soil as much as it is um, increasing the amount of food we're growing, uh, potentially accelerating the destruction mm-hmm. of the soil. So when you see a thousand square foot garden that's grown with grow biointensive techniques, um, what you see is if you can imagine a 100 square foot growing bed, maybe four feet by 25 feet long, uh, or maybe five feet by 20 feet long, um, you want it to be set to the scale where when you're standing on the side of that bed, you can reach the middle comfortably. Um, so it's got to be scaled to you as a person. And, that's kind of the basis of the whole garden in a biointensive system is it is human scale. It's people scale. So you're going to see paths that are not designed or the, not the width of a tractor tire, but you're going to see paths that are the width of your comfortable reach. Um, you're going to be moving around on your feet. Um, you're going to be hand watering. You know, when you're, when you micro scale your footprint like that, your agricultural footprint, in other words, when you micro scale the amount of land, that you need to grow your food, you also microscale the amount of water you need because the um, you're watering the soil and not the plants when you're farming. So you're creating a living tissue in the soil, a womb for plant growth. And a womb is an acronym for air, water, organic matter, minerals, and biology. And that's that living tissue that you're trying to create through the types of soil preparation that we advocate in the grow biointensive system. So your tools are shovels and spades. Um, you're using a hose. The water's prepared more deeply, so when you do water, it goes deeper and it's stored more effectively. You're planting things closer together um, and in tighter um, plantings that we call close plant spacing or hexagonal plantings rather than rows. You're actually planting things in hexagons where the leaves touch as the plants mature and cover the soil and conserve water create a little microclimate that reduces evaporation. You're seeing a diversity of plants. You're not just growing one type of thing in a grow biointensive system. You're growing typically trying to grow, you know, 10 or 20 different crops. And you're, you can companion plant them. Um, there's a lot of diversity in a biointensive garden because you're growing a diversity of nutrition for yourself and also a diversity of nutrition for the soil, which means you're going to have compost piles. You're going to be growing plants that grow really tall and beautiful like sunflowers and flower corn, um, quinoa, amaranth, sorghum, wheat, barley, oats, millet, cereal rye. These things grow really tall and provide a lot of nutrition, and then we compost their biomass. So you see beautiful compost piles sitting directly over some of your growing beds, and whatever leaches out of that compost pile goes into the growing bed and makes your next crop really good. Um, You're generally going to see 
um, you know, a deer fence in this area. You're going to see, um, you know, maybe a wheelbarrow or some buckets and a lot of flowers, hopefully, and <laughs> um, smiling faces in the garden. Um, when you see a normal farm, you're going to see a very large area that has been kind of cut back and is um, extensive in its management and very limited in its diversity. Um, you might see soil blowing in the wind when the soil dries out. You might see um, large paths with compacted you know, areas where tractors have been driving over them, compacting that living tissue. Um, you might see big tractors that are really loud. I used to drive a tractor, and I couldn't even hear the birds chirping when I was driving. <laughs> I wasn't even touching the soil, and it was breaking my heart because I wanted to farm. I wanted to garden, and I wasn't even touching the earth, and it was so noisy. And I was just inhaling tractor exhaust the whole time. Um, so it's quite a different strategy to grow your food, which is actually what farming is all about. It's about growing food, right? Right, right. I really appreciate the language that you're using, you know, naming the womb as this nurturing place, the soil and the garden. Um, I, thank you for that imagery. Um, also, I want to just drive this point home, this thousand square feet that we're talking about. You propose that a person can grow all their calories uh, for the entire year in just a thousand square feet of biointensively planted space. That is such a revolutionary idea. It's really beautiful. Um, and in your book, you succinctly describe this agricultural crisis that we're in, and you offer this simple solution of just grow vegetables in your yard. Um, and, and it seems like, so we have this really local individual action um, but it has such a huge global impact. Um, can you summarize this perfect storm? Um, I think you've mentioned some things uh, already, like uh, you know the mess we're in. I think a lot of us are familiar with it, but summarize this perfect storm and address how microscaling agriculture can restore our biosphere. Sure. Yeah, well, you know, the situation's becoming so complicated, and... Um, I haven't even gotten a chance to read the latest um, IPCC climate change report. Uh, maybe maybe you guys have, but um, I'm sure it's not a happy situation that they're painting. Um, you know, we have our work cut out for us. Um, there's two ways to look at it. One is to feel that weight, um, to, to realize how much trouble we're in. The other is to do what nature does all the time, every day, every second of every day, and that's adapt. The forest fire comes in, nature adapts. The, the tr old tree falls down, nature adapts. The winds blow, um, the rain comes down, um, insects come in, uh, animals come in. Nature's constantly adapting, and that's something that we, I think, have lost touch with because we've distanced ourselves so far from nature. Uh, we've been able to kind of become a little too smart for our own good, and, um, you know, we don't have to grow our own food. We're one of the few species on the planet that, um, you know, works to make money to go buy food. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if anyone else does that. <laughs> uh, we're also one of the only ones that says we need a vacation all the time. And, um, I'm all I'm pro vacation, by the way. But um, when you work and do what you love, um, you're lucky. And um, I, I think the work ahead of us is to cultivate that relationship with our biosphere and each other as a community 
to move forward together um, and help each other uh, as we transition towards um, the drawdown of our consumption. And at the same time, as we have to localize, we have to make sure that we preserve our ecologies. So there's this wonderful opportunity in front of us to be a part of the ecosystem around us. Um, Alan Chadwick, who is one of the teachers of John Jevons and who I listen to all the time, there's a wonderful website called the alanchadwickarchive.org where you can hear his lectures. He started the UC Santa Cruz Garden, which inspired John at Ecology Action to develop Grow Biointensive. Um, Alan used to, to talk about how destructive man can be on the planet. And then he would follow that up with this sweet realization that nature would be incomplete without us and that we perhaps have a role to play in this new age as this perfect storm of climate change, economic challenges, social challenges, our educational systems are suffering, um, poverty is on the increase, we're in the middle of a pandemic, uh, water, the UN says by um, 2030, two-thirds of the world's population may lack the water to actually grow their food. Um, which is where most of our water usage goes to that we don't really think about. We think of low-flow toilets and taking less showers, but our dietary choices are actually a huge implication on our water table and aquifers and the health of our rivers and so forth. So, And how, it's not just what we eat, but it's how it's grown. Um, so anyways, yeah, this opportunity to kind of heal our relationship with nature, which is really healing our relationship with ourselves. I've kind of realized that what brought me to farming was I felt disconnected from nature and I didn't know how to take care of myself. Um, and I realized once I started touching the earth, I got off the tractor and I started working directly with the plants and feeling those rhythms and pulsations of the season and the day, feeling the plants growing, being able to nurture that which nurtures me. I was able to heal my rift that I had with nature and realized that I could actually play a, a productive, creative part in nature. I wasn't just taking all the time. And when you realize and feel that potential, as I'm sure you guys have, because um, I've met you before, Matthew, and I can see it in your eye, um, you know, that, that you know what that means to, to be a part of, of nature and to desire that and feel pulled by that. And I think when people feel that, we won't have to convince people to go start a garden. Um, they're going to be drawn into it. And, you know, it's either going to be out of necessity because of this perfect storm, um, or we can joyfully and celebratorily um, work together to create abundance while times are good. So it's easier in the future when times get a little more tough, when we have less resources, less fossil fuels. Um, so, yeah, I think the challenge is big, but the opportunity is even bigger. If you are just joining us, you are listening to the Farm and Garden Show. We are having a conversation with Matt Druno about his recent publication, of Path to Peace and Sustainability, Growing Soil, Food, and Seed in as Little as a 1,000 Square Feet. All right. In your booklet, you, you write a passage about equity and the global situation we find ourselves in, which I'm going to read now. It is as follows. Our current food system is based on technological and fossil fuel-driven methods of agriculture, and it's already failing us. Sustainability is not just about a more ecological way of growing food. It is also about equality, social justice, eco ecology, and resource conservation. It is about creating a peaceful and livable biosphere. It's about giving future generations a chance to move forward as times become more challenging 
and our ecologies and climate become more fragile. This passage makes it clear that our global food system is more than just about feeding hungry bellies. The rays of ancient sunlight streaming down upon the earth and embodied in all known living systems become us. The understatement of the century, food is important. Is food security something that could be considered a human right? And where are we right now in achieving food security as a species, Matt? Oh, yeah. Um, I think everyone should have the right to um, the resources required to grow food in a responsible manner. And I think that's a, a local issue where in the past we, only, you know, that when Europeans first came here, there was only, um, they, they found the place with the highest population density was where the Chumash indigenous um, groups were down in Southern California in the most perfect climate. Uh, the most perfect ecosystem where water meets land, where um, the seasons are beautiful and generous. Um, there was only 22 people per square mile. And then in that same area, now you see Los Angeles, which has 7,500 people per square mile. So the way that we used to subside off the land or subsist off the land um, is going to be different than the way we're going to have to do it now if we really want to talk about equity and peace. Um, I think that it, it's interesting because in certain parts of the world you go and they don't talk about food security. And I find that the places that talk about food security are the consumer societies that the consumer-based societies that um, really rely, in other words, the Northern Hemisphere, which really relies on the Southern Hemisphere for the bulk of its resources, its metals, its food, its Essentially, it's soil and water, and it's labor to feed our markets. Um, and we talk about food security here in the Northern Hemisphere because I think subconsciously we don't provide for ourselves, and we don't know where our next meal is going to come from. Now, when you talk to cultures in the Southern Hemisphere who are growing the food for us, who know how to take care of themselves and their community, but they're being held at gunpoint to produce for us, not literally, though sometimes literally. <laughs> yeah. Um, certainly slavery built this country. Um, but these cultures talk about food sovereignty, which is a different concept. It's the right to be able to grow food for your family, to not starve while you're producing food for other people uh, because you have no other choice. So the issues of food security and food sovereignty are powerful, and depending on where you're at, they mean different things. Um, to me, both of them together are really important. So the community garden work we're doing in Fort Bragg is as much about food security as it is food sovereignty, whereas um, you know, probably about a quarter of our population used the food bank before the COVID pandemic, according to the food bank's website. And now you're seeing um, it's probably more like 35 to 50% are using the food bank on a monthly basis in Fort Bragg um, because of COVID and the challenges. And so for those people who, um, you know, there's people who don't yet know how easy and fun it is. And it's not totally easy. You fail sometimes. You have a crop failure. Yeah. yeah. But once you, once you get it, you know, it's it's easy and it's fun. And you learn the rhythms and you learn to work with it. It's a new language. But it's beautiful. It's in our blood. We all have that capacity. Um but then there's other folks who, you know, lack the land or can't afford the, the, the organic food. And 
that's where food sovereignty comes in, where we need to make access to um, the resources for people to at least grow their own food uh, in every corner of our country and all around the world. Um, food security is not something that we buy. It's something we create together. And um, so long as our neighbor's hungry, we don't have food security. So it's really about food sovereignty and food security and working together to create a better community. It's beautifully put. Thank you. Um, why don't we invite people to uh, call in and if they have any questions for Matt or comments, we're opening the phone lines and the number you can call is? 895-2448. That number is 895-2448. And while people think about what they're going to ask you, I would love to hear more about your project um, with the garden-friendly community, Fort Bragg, in 2019. Fort Bragg City Council adopted a resolution supporting Fort Bragg, California as a garden-friendly city, declaring Fort Bragg as the first garden-friendly community in the world. That's so exciting. Can you talk more about this and give us an update on how this Community Gardens project is going? Yeah. So we created the Garden-Friendly Community Resolution at Victory Gardens for Peace as a tool that communities can use to organize people behind the idea and then pass a local resolution together and bring together government, business, and people. In other words, not top-down or bottom-up, meeting in the middle. And then celebrating the home and community gardening culture by declaring it in a resolution as important to our community for food sovereignty and food security and the health of our ecologists and our people. So we passed that resolution in Fort Bragg as a, a means to kickstart local food movement specifically around uh, gardening and community gardening and at the time there were gardens that could be used by various people in our community like the senior center garden the noyo food forest um, and other projects at the, the various elementary schools and middle school but there wasn't a true community garden where anyone could just sign up for a plot and so we wanted to develop community gardens, and we were surprised by the city of Fort Bragg that they were so enthusiastic in passing this resolution that they provided us with land to start our first community garden. That's great. And then Paul Katzniff and Joan Katzniff contacted us and said they wanted to um, revitalize a community garden. They had something like 15 years ago, 20 years ago, um, that had been dormant. So um, it's to be used as a tool um, to start uh, local food efforts and um, to hold accountable our community um, for its own food security as well. Wow, that's really fantastic. You know, um, you wrote an article for Word of Mouth magazine last summer um, and said that uh, Victory Gardens for Peace initiative had a study which demonstrated that within a few years, Fort Bragg could grow all of its calories um, for the 7,000 people that live there in its own city limits and on land that is already in lawns. Um, the vision's fantastic and, and really taking this abstract idea of micro-scaling gardens and, uh, and applying it to a specific instance, you know, on a specific town, city like Fort Bragg. Um, what would it take to mobilize this kind of project? And was that what you were thinking of with the um, community gardens? Yeah, the community gardens are definitely a part of that. Um, but it's also home gardens, too. And um, 
So what we set out to do is to, to ask the question, what would happen if Fort Bragg had to grow all of its own food? And um, what would be possible on land that we already had? And if we were to capture rainwater uh, off our roofs and store it without having to um, try and dig for more water because Fort Bragg is already limited in its growth by the water resources that are currently there. So what we found was, um, and there's a difference between growing all your own calories and growing a complete diet. And the thousand square foot booklet that I wrote is growing a complete diet and all your compost materials and seed. Now, when you're talking about growing calories, which is what we did in this study, um, a good exercise for people to do if they want to get into subsistence agriculture or use grow biointensive techniques is to take two growing beds of whatever size and come up with a crop rotation that maximizes the amount of carbon you're fixing. In other words, including very tall plants that are growing lots of biomass for your compost pile and also maximizes your calorie production. And those two things don't always come together. For example, I could grow 100 square foot of potatoes, get 200 pounds of potatoes using grow biointensive techniques, and um, each potato has 300, or each pound of potatoes has 350 calories. So in other words, I can grow 70,000 calories with a crop of potatoes, but they don't provide a lot of biomass. So I'm feeding my stomach, but not feeding the soil. Um, if I were to grow barley, uh, I could grow maybe 10 pounds of barley in 100 square feet. Uh, barley is about 1,600 calories per pound, so I can grow 16,000 calories in 100 square feet with barley, which is a lot less than the potatoes at 70,000 calories. But I'm also getting maybe 30 pounds of dry biomass uh, grown in that bed that can then be food for the soil through composting. Mm. We want to feed our soil and feed ourselves, and that's what we – we set out to do in that study was what crop rotation could we pick that would maximize soil production and food production. And we came up with a rotation of fava beans in the winter, um, not grown for the bean, but grown to fix nitrogen in the soil because they're a legume. They grow during the winter, so great. Not everything grows in the winter. We would harvest them maybe in April or May uh, and then plant potatoes and then follow that with barley um, and then that would give us enough biomass to grow enough compost so we're not depleting our soils. And it would provide a significant source of calories that after an estimate of um, seven to ten years, as our skill level builds up, as we reskill in how to grow these crops, as their soil improves, because soil, to improve soil, it's, it's, you don't go buy something and putting it on the soil. Um, you can do that. You can buy fertilizers, but if we actually talk about a local food system and everyone growing food, there's not enough fertilizers on the shelves uh, to be able to do that. So we have to do it the old-fashioned way, which is preparing the, the soil carefully and cultivating with sensitivity um, so we don't deplete our soils. So with that skill buildup, um, with the, the soil buildup, in 7 to 10 years, we can provide all the calories on land grown within city limits of Fort Bragg using water that falls from the sky saved um, in water tanks. Um, a 120-square-foot garden shed will provide all the water you need in a normal rain year, which we haven't had, but we hopefully will. Um, and we could feed enough um, calories to all of the residents, the 7,500 people who live in Fort Bragg. So these sorts of patterns are really important, not just for Fort Bragg, but for communities around the world. And that's our goal with Victory Gardens is to... Um, create these resolutions, create these diet designs, create these um, maps and these 
different programs. And then we have something called Garden Corps, where we train people in how to do these things in their communities so that they can replicate not the diet design that I came up with or Matthew came up with or Wilma came up with, but the patterns and how to do that um, and come up with something sustainable and low impact. That's wonderful. Thank you. The lines are wide open, folks. Give us a call to join the conversation. 895-2448. So you write that using the grow biointensive method correctly and with a thousand square foot design, we are left with enough soil, water, energy, and ecology to support 10 billion people while also restoring over 99% of our current agricultural lands into fully functioning ecosystems. All this while using as little as 2 to 10% of the water compared to our current dietary footprints. How does the current drought and water shortage issues affect the potential for people to grow their own food gardens here in Mendocino County and over on the coast as well? I think you just mentioned that you could actually capture most of your water from just a small shed roof. Um, so, I mean, you know, the, the a drought is it's defined by the culture. So would there still be, I guess what I'm saying is, are you in a drought if you're farming biointensively in Fort Bragg? I'm not sure. Yeah, I hear what you're saying there. Um, you know, I, I think if you look historically at what used to happen here 80 years ago, a hundred years ago and more, um, we're getting, even in a good rain year nowadays, we're getting half of what we used to get. Um, so certainly the ecosystem feels it. And I'm sure a lot of these fires are a result of that um, change. And there's very there's some climate scientists who live in our community um, who are wonderful people. And one of them is an atmospheric climate specialist. And he was explaining to me how um, basically the drier conditions from down south are migrating to the north. And um, it seems kind of like a no-brainer, but the mechanics of it were fascinating. And I don't remember them all, but um, he's a wonderful man and has a lot of um, knowledge in this. In this, and It made a lot of sense when he was telling me that. So it's likely that we're going to see our climate shift towards something more like Big Sur and Carmel, um, that area, uh, into you know the next 10 years or maybe starting yesterday, for all I know. <laughs> the last um, Yes. Yeah, so um, we're going to have to adjust. Our ecosystems are going to adjust. We're probably going to have some fires. That's maybe the natural process of change that happens as climate shift. Um, and we're going to have to learn to deal with that as we are. Um, now, when you're using the, the drought, yeah, I hear what you're saying by the drought being defined by the culture, because surely um, the drought affects agriculture. But when your agriculture uses so little water, you're not as affected by the drought. So, in other words, like I mentioned earlier, when you're watering, um, you're not watering the plant, you're watering the soil. When you're fertilizing, you're not feeding the plant, you're feeding the soil. And you're creating this wound, right, um, where this moisture is held um, for your plants to thrive in. So, with these biointensive techniques and micro-scaling your footprint, and we're going to have to probably move towards a vegan diet. I hate to break it to, to everybody, but... Um, <laughs> We're going to have to eat less meat um, at the very least and less dairy um, because in the amount of area you can grow one cow, which would provide half the calories for one person for a full year, 
and requires something like 600 gallons of water for a hamburger. Um, in that same area, you could grow enough food um, for 45 people. Um, in that same area, you can grow enough food for 20 people and then restore half of it in a fully functioning ecosystem, um, which has effects on the water table and makes um, it actually, when you plant trees, it actually creates rain. Um, if you plant enough of them and you establish a sufficient-sized ecosystem, the forest actually creates weather. So um, I think when we're talking about how do we navigate through this drought, um, changes in our diet are going to be important. Um, and how we grow our food is going to be important. So the average American diet is about an acre and a half, which is about 75,000 square feet. The average vegan diet is between seven and 10,000 square feet, and that's significantly less. You know, We're talking about one-tenth the area of a, a, a meat and dairy diet, um, and, but it's conventionally grown with tractors. And then you can get down to 1,000 square feet, with grow bio-intensive, which is um, one-tenth of that or one-seventh of that. So, um, you know, moving into the future, more people, less resources, less water available per person, more pollution. Um, you know, we're going we're gonna to need to switch over. Um, and that's the way things have always been. We didn't always eat so much dairy and cheese and meat. Um, traditionally, we as a species ate a lot more vegetables and foraged a lot more. Um, I think our health for, will benefit from it also. Yeah, there's plenty of, of uh, evidence out there, whether you're talking to some a scientist or a doctor of the heart or a doctor of the digestive tract or whatever, <laughs> that too much meat and dairy causes inflammation. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly the, the act of raising those animals um, is causing inflammation uh, on our biosphere, and um, you know we're feeling the effects of climate change from all the deforestation in the Amazon to raise cattle, um, for example. I'd like to remind all the listeners out there that the lines are open for calls. You can join our conversation uh, and ask some questions. Matt Drunos here on the on the air with us, talking about a path to peace and sustainability growing soil, food, and seed in as little as 1,000 square feet. The number to call is 707-895-2448, 895-2448. So one, one thing I, was, I observed um, while reading your book is that, and, you know, the, the bio inten- grow biointensive techniques is it seems like with the efficiencies that we're getting from, from these techniques that there isn't really any kind of mechanization that would make make this process more efficient. I mean, as far as, you know, the inputs of, of resources. And I'm trying to imagine a tractor, you know, driving through a little biointensive farm, and it just doesn't seem to work. And so it seems like if we slowly, quickly, hopefully, transition towards these, you know, more ancient techniques of, of gardening, that we will eliminate scarcity by just doing less um so i don't know i'm pretty pretty optimistic in that regard i mean i think the usda says that conventional farms you know if you're if you're an organic non-mechanized producer you can produce 90 percent more food on the same amount of space as somebody with a tractor so it just seems kind of like things are a little askew and i think you mentioned in your book that something like um uh, 
the vast per- percentage of the food grown on the planet is actually grown in smallholder um, acreage. So there just seems to be a little bit of a topsy-turvy situation that we're in here. Um, you, I have a question for you, Matt. Um, what are your thoughts on government intervention uh, to create this microscaling of agriculture? I mean, I feel like the big guys are just going to keep going until there's nothing left to go on. But in my mind, you know, and maybe we all share this idea that we need to have, um, you know, a radical reanalysis of of how we farm and produce our food moving into the future uh, before it's too late. Um, so, so again, what are your thoughts regarding government intervention and rules around agriculture? Yeah, I mean, I think um, a large part of what happened in Tiananmen Square back in um, during the Cultural Revolution of China was government intervention in their agriculture, um, which led to bloodshed in the streets. Um, I think there is a the colonial mentality and an imperial mentality behind government and corporations, which at this point is pretty clear the government serves the corporations, um, and agribusiness and the agricultural corporations have really big influence in the government. The idea of them forcing mechanization on us um, and forcing chemicals on us seems scary to me, but the reality is, is we're way past the point where they started doing that. Mm. Um, in the 70s, uh, something like 10,000 farmers a year went bankrupt for 10 years because of the decisions made by the Department of Agriculture and Agricultural Secretary Earl Butts um, messing with the markets. Uh, last year, or a couple years ago, when um, Donald Trump wanted to start a trade war with China, it uh, really screwed up and screwed over our soybean farmers um, to where we had a, a massive increase in farmer suicides in the Midwest to which the communities in that area called up the Secretary of Agriculture, who is from the Purdue chicken family, Sonny Purdue, and uh, said, um, our farmers are killing themselves, our families, our family farms are left without farmers, our family is suffering. How? What can you do to help us? And he said, in America, we go big or we go home. Mm. And that was his response to our small farm, not necessarily small farmers, but our farming communities that of, of what was left to them. So I think that um, when we look at what our farm landscapes look like, when we look at what our farming communities look like, you know, they've been destroyed by this type of agriculture. Um, this kind of main street's gone. And a lot of it has to do with the loss of our local agriculture and the destruction of our local communities through, um, you know, dismantling these communities, starting with the farms. Um, now then there's government incentives and subsidies and tax breaks and things like that. And those can be used as a tool to promote um, something that's better for the people on the planet. Now, right now, most of those subsidies go towards the large-scale mechanized conventional chemical farms. Um, there's the university groups and corporations that don't want any more farmers on the land that want to run tractors with GPS and drones to uh, spray chemicals and um, mechanically harvest everything um, with AI intelligence. Um, they're going to do everything they can until there's nothing left. Um, and then there's the groups like us who are sitting here listening to the radio that believe in people <laughs> and believe in nature 
um, and don't need uh, to exploit the earth for profit. Um, we just want a peaceful, livable planet. And that's where government incentive can come in to make things more accessible for people. Yeah, it reminds me of that quote, uh, the opposite of love is power. Um, it looks like we have a call here. I'm going to take a call here. Caller, you are on the air. Oh, hi. Great show. Um, Matt, this is RJ here in Willits, checking in. Um, Want to bring up a question, which is uh, food storage in all of this, grain storage. How do you see that rolling out? Yeah, RJ, so great to hear your voice. I hope you guys are doing good. Um, so we the are. range in Willits, you guys had a wonderful... Uh, grain storage project happening at one point, correct? It was great when it was working, but um, it's it seemed to have a life expectancy, and uh, it's no longer operational. And that's a conversation that uh, that uh, I have going with you is the uh, future of some of those hoppers or silos. Yeah. So, you know, we're in this strange position where um, we all believe in local food, but we don't really know what that looks like right now. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, you know, locally produced, I think there was a uh, study that the Mendocino Food Policy Council did in 2014 that showed um, 1% of all the produce um, grown in this county is actually consumed by local people to this county. So we need to get back to... Um, figuring out how we can make it economically viable uh, because that's part of the, the colonial imperial attitude that governments have taken is to take localization out of the picture. So we're all dependent on globalized trade routes and maximizing the profit for the, uh, well, those investment people who, um, you know, sit on, um, what do they call them? They call them, uh, starts with a C commodity markets. Yeah, where they'll sit there and let you starve so the price of grain goes up, and then they'll sell you when the price has gone high enough um, that you'll pay for it. So it's kind of a different situation. I think the importance of what the, the Grange did with those silos, which I don't know the full story, and I would love to talk to you more about that, but we're so far ahead of the time sometimes. Um, sometimes it's by looking backwards a little bit that we get the ideas for what we actually need to do um, going forward, but... You guys got those silos, and I think we were just a little ahead of our time there. Um, and I hope we can keep those in the community. The Mendocino Grain Project, which was started by Doug Mosel, which is now run by Rachel Britton, is a very inspiring project to try and grow local grains here and make them affordable um, for people in our community. And um, so I hope we can find a use for those hoppers. Yeah, back in, in 2008, uh, we were fortunate. Uh, there was a window of opportunity, and we went for it. We got a, uh, a grant from uh, the USDA, and uh, that's, that's how that happened. So there's an example of how we can work with the government to relocalize. That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just find out what resources, uh, you know, it's an old, <laughs> find out what the resources are and find out what the, uh, the uh, windows uh, that these grant applications are closing and see if we can, uh, you know, tailor a, a grant to fit our, our needs given the parameters of the agency and, and the grant. Yeah, and we're working on Fort, in Fort Bragg, we're working to develop a local cannery again. There used to be a cannery there that would help preserve the harvest. 
Um, and we're going to have to do a little bit of that searching for those grants to figure out how to make this feasible um, and bring it back. Because, again, it's a little far ahead of its time. It probably won't be until things get really crazy that people will realize the importance of locally grown food. Um, or programs like this and people like you guys, RJ, and the Grange and Willits, um, play such an important role in getting people thinking about these things. So, Well, I appreciate everything you're doing, Matt. Thank you so much. You too, Andrew. Caller. Caller, you are on the air. Hi. Uh, great show. Um, I, I sort of wanted to follow up on uh, the, the comments from both the caller that preceded me and uh, the comments that you folks make a little while earlier about the interaction between government and uh, efforts um, for food uh, sustainability. And, you know, there's a huge amount of money that uh, the federal government uh, is allocating to uh, cities, counties, state governments um, trillions of dollars, uh, trillions upon trillions of dollars right now, uh, literally uh, more money than uh, local government officials have seen in decades and decades. And I was curious. I know uh, that recently the Grassroots Institute, uh, in conjunction with Supervisor Gertie, um, was able to uh, get the Board of Supervisors to set aside $2 million for uh, green mitigation programs in the county to uh, reduce the, car the county government's uh, uh, carbon footprint, which was a great success. But um, what about food sustainability? Have you folks uh, developed an agenda, a set of demands um, that you are prepared to bring to the county and to the state and to the cities and other uh, government jurisdictions? Um, you know, I, I guess it strikes me that um, if you see a problem and you're the folks working in that arena, it's up to you to formulate a solution if you rely on government leaders to do it, you're probably not going to be happy about what they give you. So I'll take my answer off the air, but thank you very much for the program. All right, we've got about 30 seconds for an answer, Matt. Okay. Uh, yeah, tag, we're all in. <laughs> we, we've got to do these things together. Uh, it's a great question. And, um, yeah, anyone who wants to work on those things, give me a call, 847-404-2586, Matt at victorygardensforpeace.com. VictoryGardensForPeace.com. Well, thank you. And that was our show with Matt Druno of Victory Gardens for Peace. We appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh, we're lucky to have such a passionate educator living in our community. Thank you for sharing your wealth of knowledge. Um, and can people get your booklet on the website you just said? And can you repeat that? Um, yeah, you can email me or you can go to www.growbiointensive.org and you can purchase it there. Um, or you can contact me and I'll make that work. And thank you guys so much for hosting the show and for giving me the opportunity to oh. share the exciting things we're doing. It's our thank pleasure. Thank you so much. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.